Welcome to part one of this special two-part episode of Think Like a Nobel Prize winner featuring Dr. Barry Barish, co-recipient of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics for the LIGO experiment. This lively discussion between Dr. Barish and Professor Keating touches on scientific leadership, academic stress, the role of mentors and managers in science, and many other topics. Don't forget to come back for part two. Welcome to Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. Discover how the world's most accomplished scientists supercharge their creativity and strengthen their most precious collaborations, and how you can too, no matter what you do. Well, we are here live in Los Angeles for a very special interview with, as you longtime listeners of the Into the Impossible podcast know, is one of my heroes, not only of experimental physics, not only of the pursuit of perfection as an educator, but uh, our true mention, somebody that I look up to because he has not only scientific knowledge, which is what science means, but he also has a lot of wisdom. And we figured I'm in LA today, maybe we do a, a special live version, or not live version, but uh, we record in person since we missed out on that pleasure last time. So how have you been since uh, well, last year? Well, you know, considering this silly situation we're in, <laughs> I'm fine. I know. I, I got my first vaccination in Dodger Stadium. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, two weeks ago or so. You have to wait two more weeks to get a second one. Right, yeah. But that was quite a scene. There's <laughs> 10,000 people going through in cars. <laughs> well, you always were a good athlete growing up. So, yeah. you know, you made it to Dodger Stadium one way or right. another. <laughs> right. So I uh, wanted to talk, last time we talked a lot about, you know, kind of the, the process of science, how LIGO came about, SSC. Uh, I thought maybe we'd talk about maybe a little bit about the future and what interests you. If you had to take uh, another uh, tack in career, starting off right now, what aspects of astrophysics, astronomy, physics are appealing to you or interesting to you or just somewhat fascinating, even if it wouldn't be your career? I've, I've been curious about that. Yeah. Okay. The, the future is always hard because you change your mind all the, all the <laughs> time. Uh, I, uh, you know, my background was particle physics, but then I kind of moved into... Um, we, did, we just talked about this thing. I, I yeah. spent 10 years of my life looking for magnetic monopoles. I don't know if I told you that. Yeah. And, uh, I, and then I uh, have done LIGO. I'm sorry about the planes. Yeah, that's okay. Nothing we can deal with. I'm that. a pilot. I'm yeah. used to airplane noise. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder for myself, I always think that I'm pretty forward looking and I'm not restricted by whatever I've done. But I must say, I, I miss the boat on what you do, CMB. Hmm. I, n I never really, even though it was going on at Caltech and Andy Lang was hired during my time, it never really caught me. And it was just something that I asked myself why, I don't know hmm. why. Hmm. But so when you think of whether you have any vision of where <laughs> experimental physics should go, I, I missed it on, on, on that. I, 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 I mean, I, I, it isn't that I didn't know the, f the physics potential because it's been around Caltech. So and that's not the only thing I've missed. But, mm. but I, that, since it was happening around me, I, I always ask myself uh, why. Uh, personally, I, d I don't think the, even though my background is in particle physics, um, I, I doubt if the, that there's a big frontier there in, in the future. Mm. Uh, even if we solve the problem of how to make accelerators have a higher gradient and mm -hmm. they're cheaper, I, I think the problem is uh, background. Mm -hmm. uh, what I mean by that is in, in particle physics, there's a lot that happens when you collide particles together. And if you want to see something new, if you just look at the discovery of the Higgs boson, um, this is a long-winded answer because yeah, I don't have fine. a real answer. <laughs> it's your show. Okay, I, I don't have a real answer. So, uh, but if you look at the discovery of the Higgs boson, you you'll... Hi, Simone. Hi, Simone. Nice to meet you. That's my daughter's middle name. Oh, yeah. Very nice to meet you. Water. He wants water. You want water? Okay. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> so if you, if you look at the discovery of the Higgs boson, 
you'll notice it's a little teeny peak over a yeah. big background. And if you really look carefully, you'll notice that the zero has been suppressed. <laughs> so right. it's worse than it looks like. Yeah. And uh, the other than how much of a frontier it is after that, uh, you'll notice how slowly progress is. And the reason is that there's so much physics background that whatever you see, even something like the Higgs boson, is a very tiny effect on top of a physics background. So you have to understand that background very well and then pile up huge statistics to, to see something. And uh, that's, uh, as you go higher in energy, that almost any effects you can think of, they don't stand out. So I, I think it's not easy to make progress just for a reason of what kind of data you get. Yeah. There's a lot of science in the data that you already know and then you're trying to see something on top of that. And the topologies can be the same. The only difference is that uh, that a cluster of the particles in the final state add up to the mass of whatever the Higgs boson is. LIGO is different than that. And that we, so we made our discovery three, four years after the Higgs, but we've progressed even since then a lot faster. And that's not that we're better, it's that the situation is much more favorable. Because what limits LIGO is technical issues, not physics. And so the technical issues are the shaking of the earth or electronic noise or things that we can cope with. And so uh, we know how to make the background lower, which lets you see smaller effects. And we've done that already, and we'll keep doing it. And so it's the advantage of having kind of a, a background that... Uh, isn't science, isn't physics. It's really just something that gets into your, your equipment. So in, so I think that, um, just taking the two things that I know the best, that, uh, that there's a much better future in gravitational waves than in particle physics. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think the future is so bright. I'll tell you why I think so that I would have to be awfully tempted if I were to go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first round was to see gravitational waves. And uh, now uh, there's so many things that we can do as we get more sensitive that uh, I, uh, I think it's just really bright. Even though it seems like you're measuring something that's so small, the things that limit it are even much, much smaller. So, so uh, you'll continue to see us do better and better over the next five or 10 years. And then... Uh, we know what it would take to build a next generation detector. Uh, whether it'll happen, whether it's funded, I don't know. But my first answer is the simple one. This is too rich to go anywhere else. Right. Why leave it? Yeah. And uh, we haven't really done uh, anywhere near the testing of Einstein's equations that we're going to be able to do. We haven't uh, uh, good enough sky coverage to do the kind of multi-messenger astronomy that we can do, but I think primarily, and you'll relate to this, everything we've done so far is just simple astrophysics. Yeah, it's a discovery. It's, it's you know, stopping now would be like Galileo stopping after discovering the moons of Jupiter. <laughs> Thank you. You warm enough? I love, I, I am if more not, than warm. We've got yeah. blankets or anything else you need or a heavy stroke. Thank you so here much. You go. Oh, this is so delightful. Do you want some coffee? Um, no, I think water's okay. just fine. Thank you so much, Sonam. Okay, have a good meeting. <laughs> Thank so you. I think. You know, what, what I meant was everything we're doing, of course, so we're doing things to keep going. But in particular, I think there's a rich future in gravitational waves in starting to do cosmology. Mm -hmm. I say I didn't understand yeah. what you do, but, but everything we do now is a very small Z, you know, redshift. Mm -hmm. And as we can increase the sensitivity, we get a lot more events, we get more sensitivity, but I think the primary... Personally, I think the primary real change will be to get to large Z and be able to, to, to do cosmology with, with, with gravitational yeah. waves. And that's a very generalized statement, but I think that's what opens up other than being much, much more sensitive. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, the other thing is that you brought up is in particle physics, because particle physicists are sort of a victims of their own success in that they discovered so much so fast it was really exponential. And I feel right now, 
Marines are serenaded. I know, I know. Well, I'm a pilot. I've flown out of Santa Monica on many, many occasions, but uh, we always see it from the other side. That all oh, these residents—they're always complaining about our noise. You know, it's like um, I think it's a misdemeanor if you start your engine after 11 p.m. at Santa Monica Airport. And Santa Monica Airport is destined to be closed, but not this week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hopefully not too. It is an amazing and has a historical background. Yeah, the pilots does. love it. It's a real pilots' airport important for the community. But anyway, getting back to the particle physics. So I hear a lot from my particle physics friends in the experiment that the future is sort of equally bright. Uh, if only we could build things like the future circular collider or the international linear collider, or these hundred million billion dollars. And if I've learned one thing from you, and I'm not the best student, but like when somebody tells you that an experiment is going to cost X dollars, you have to at least double that if you ever want to operate the experiment. And you probably have to triple, quadruple, quintuple it if you're being realistic. So those numbers could be as high as $100 billion for the future circular collider. And I always say, you know, what is the point of doing that? Not that if you canceled it, as you know, very painfully so, when the collider was superconducting, it wasn't like, oh, physics gets all this money because we canceled the SSC. No, it was almost the opposite. It was true, unfortunately. So canceling the future circular collider, I'm not saying we should do that to fund uh, CMB or future gravitational waves, but I'm just making the point that they they don't do ourselves we don't do ourselves a favor if we under cost or underestimate. Oh, I, I agree with that. We know we do know pretty much about how to cost accelerators because yeah. we've done so much. So they're not likely to be as they're under costed because of what you leave out, not because you don't know what you're doing. Kind of. What do you say to those uh, people? That but say? but anyway, let me answer your oh, yeah. question. Um, I think that it depends which thing you're talking about. I. I I think I told you that I worked for several years designing the Linear Collider. Yeah. I personally think it's worth every penny mm-hmm. and uh, should be built. Mm-hmm. Maybe as a more specialized machine than we proposed. Hmm. Uh, because when we proposed it the and I did the design, the Higgs hadn't yet been found. But now you can actually make it uh, a little more specialized, a little bit cheaper. That's kind of what the Japanese are likely to do if they build it and uh, concentrate on the Higgs. So why the Higgs? It is different than everything that we have in particle physics. It's the thing that's responsible for mass. And we don't know, except for seeing it, and seeing it in a way that you uh, are sure because of its quantum numbers, it's uh, the modes that it's made in and not made in that you know it fits the model of being a Higgs, but we don't really know anything about it yet. It is what's responsible for mass. Particle physics is fine if all the masses are zero. We put it in, we used to put it in by hand, now we put it in because we know the Higgs mechanism. So if we want to understand how nature makes mass, we have to understand, we have to study the Higgs boson. So it's a very specialized uh, uh, probe I think the uh, a linear collider built as a Higgs factor mm. uh, is well worth mm. well worth it. I think it's a very targeted place where we just have a hint of something and we haven't done anything beyond that. And it's nothing almost as more important than where does mass come from. Right. We do we know since Einstein that E equals M C squared, right? Every kid writes it down. Energy makes mass. Einstein told us that. We now know it makes mass by a mechanism called the Higgs mechanism. So we know why it does that, but we don't know much about the Higgs mechanism and what it really is like experimental. Mm-hmm. So that kind of preempted my uh, subsequent question, which was really about the future circular collider and that I've ha- heard from preeminent experimentalists involved in the project. And I asked them, well, why should we build it? And they say, well, because serendipity can strike or, you know, they don't really have a natural target. And, and for that reason, I, I suspect that that is not as well motivated as the linear collider yeah, is. I, I, uh, I, for me, it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, except the, you know, statement that every time you've gone to higher energy, you've opened up new frontiers. But that's right. a vague yeah. kind of poetic statement. Uh, I like a better target than that. So right. uh, I think the... Uh, motivation right now. Maybe something will be seen at the LHC that will motivate it better. Uh, It takes so long to develop the technologies and designs that it's good that they're doing that. Mm -hmm. You also have a ready-made laboratory that can do it, which is CERN. Uh, But I don't know that it's... I haven't seen the 
the same kind of uh, target that you can kind of aim at. Like right. I talk about the Higgs itself, which I think mm -hmm. is... And you bring up the Higgs, and it's interesting to me because it seems like the Higgs, uh, because of its uniqueness, as you point out, it's a scalar field. It's the first known scalar field of its kind. And my job, my day job, when I'm not interviewing uh, folks for, for fun and, uh, and enjoyment, is to look for something that could be the result of the uh, what's called the infoton, which is also a scalar field, which until the Higgs boson, we point out, you know, had no analog, no discovery, had never been not noticed in nature. And, and now, since the Higgs, not only are there papers that come out every day on the archive about Higgs inflation, et cetera, but there's all sorts of hopes, perhaps maybe misguided, I want to get your opinion, that, you know, the Higgs kind of mechanism can do it all. We can have axions, we can have we can have um, uh, uh, the infloton, as I mentioned. Maybe the dark energy is, 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 is caused by, you know, something that has similarities to, to the Higgs mechanism. So I wonder, you know, if, it's, if it too might be kind of a victim of its own success in that we, we're trying to unify it with so many different disparate phenomena that maybe it's asking too much. Maybe we should just study it for its yeah, own good. I, I actually don't think it can do everything. <laughs> and I can tell you the main yeah. example where there's people contort to try to make something happen, but you, which you can always do, but it's certainly not built in. And that's the fact that neutrinos have mass. Yes. That's not described by the Higgs mechanism in any natural way. Mm -hmm. So where did that come from? Mm -hmm. That's another thing we're hoping to do with the cosmic microwave background. Uh, unfortunately, we can't actually detect the individual masses, but we can detect the, the sum of the masses. Yeah. Uh, and But that's also interesting, right? I always view it as a personal affront to my dignity as a physicist that of all the 17 fundamental elementary particles, we don't know what the masses are. We have bounds on the neutrino mass, but we don't know what the masses are. And by the way, they're the only form of dark matter that we know exists. They're not the dominant form of dark matter by any right. means, and we know that. Yeah. But, you know, I always make the joke, there's, there's this old joke of this policeman, he comes up and he sees this drunk guy on his hands and knees underneath a street light. And he's looking around, and, and, the, and the cop says, what are you doing on your hands and knees? And the guy said, the drunk guy says, I lost my keys. And the, and the cop says, here, let me, look, let me help you look for them. Uh, did you lose them over here? And he goes, no, the streetlight's where the light is. And <laughs> I feel like, yeah, that's maybe not the greatest way to look for keys, but sometimes if nature only gives us one opportunity or one glimpse, it, we may not be so lucky again, you know, which is why I wanted to, uh, to get into this. But I, I do want to get your take on neutrinos first, and then I want to ask you about serendipity in science, because I, I, I want to get your impression about some, some things that have happened lately, serendipity, with, among your other fellow Nobelists and, and others that I've talked to. Well, sir, we're going to stay on neutrinos first. Let's go on neutrinos, and then okay. we'll go to serendipity. All right, so I, I, what I said, uh, neutrinos are really mysterious particles and how they interact, and the, the, uh, the fact that one type of experiment could find two rather different phenomena, and that is how the sun burns, uh, prove that it's fusion, and at the same time not get enough neutrinos and then discover that that's because neutrinos change their identity. Mm -hmm. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and not serendipity, I don't think. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the, the fact that neutrinos can affect the cosmic microwave background the fact that the masses that we have are not described by the Higgs mechanism means to me that the neutrinos are still a, a real place where we have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And they're very, very mysterious. But they're hard to do because they don't interact. So, yeah. uh, so we now talk about doing, uh, or we're doing barely, uh, multi-messenger astronomy, where we don't just do photons, but gravitational, gravitational waves and neutrinos. But even though people have been detecting neutrinos a lot longer than gravitational waves, um, it's just too hard. Yeah. And if you try to see neutrinos from the early universe, they're too low in energy because they've thermalized. So uh, they're fantastic particles, but it's hard to get hard to get at them. Mm. Uh, serendipity. Uh, my friend Shelley Glashow loves such serendipity. He likes yes, to give a show, yeah. likes mm -hmm. to give a whole lecture on it. Actually, uh, it's been very important, obviously, in science, and probably the uh, most important. I don't know what he said, but the uh, discovery of penicillin 
which was done by serendipity is yeah. probably one that we've all benefited <laughs> from in terms of our lifespan. Mm -hmm. uh, lifespan change between 100 years ago and now is about 30 years. It's amazing. And it's some of it's due to hygiene, but, uh, but the biggest single thing is an antibiotics. And, uh, and that experiment, that was discovered by an accident. Mm -hmm. But coupled with what I believe is the key to science, so, so I'll tell you yeah. my view, which okay. is not uh, right. Shelley's, who's mm -hmm. a theorist, uh, and that is that, uh, what's the guy's name? Fitzgerald, what's his name? The guy that, that discovered penicillin? Yeah, Fitz, yeah. Fitzgerald. Yeah, he went on vacation, was going on vacation, as I re recall. Yeah, and when he went on vacation, he came back and on his uh, plates were some mold. And then he noticed that the pen, the, his penicillin was eating away at the mold. Right. And uh, I think if you were a book scientist that just did what's in the book, you would clean your plates yeah. and go on with what you're doing. I wouldn't do that. I'm notoriously <laughs> messy, as my wife will attest. <laughs> and uh, instead of doing that, he, he was curious what was causing that. And, of course, following that up is what right. developed penicillin. So that, that's a... Uh, serendipitous discovery, but wouldn't have been made without curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go to the last page or next to last page in your book and ask you a question. Because curiosity for me is uh, what I think is the whole key to being a scientist. Uh, and it's the flaw in our educational system that we basically kill it. Curiosity killed the cat. And uh, those of us that have survived that are the ones that kind of continue to do science. So you say, at the end, it's the only thing I remember from your book, by the way. <laughs> Not really, I'm joking. They say you only remember 1% of every book you've ever read. Nah, I'm just joking. <laughs> okay. But I, somewhere near the end, you'll remember this. You said that uh, as you got something like more powerful instruments, your curiosity has grown and grown. I think it's maybe... The, Nearly the last paragraph of the book. That's true. Uh, I always key in on the word <laughs> curiosity, so I remember that. Can you tell me what you meant by that? I think when I when I look at now benefiting from having kids and having been a kid, I always used to say, you know, scientists are like children. We have curiosity, we have imagination, we don't play well with others, we are jealous, <laughs> we don't we like to have our toys. And when I see my kids discover something. I think uh, Michelson said this. He said that, you know, a scientist is someone who's like a kid who solves a puzzle. And when a kid solves a puzzle, they don't just put it away. They'll come back to it because you get a rush, which I now know is dopamine, this, this, this satisfaction kind of hormone that gets secreted. And it's addictive. And I have, I recognize I have an addictive personality and it's something I have to control. Thank God it's not involving anything illegal or, or, or what have you. But it's something that I want to encourage, but strike this balance between. Because every every you know every blessing can come with a curse. You can you can have sort of you know uh, a sense that science, for example, pursuing it is the you know materialism. It is the only acceptable explanation, and you must live by this particular way. In my case, curiosity is is almost as, as fundamental as, as, you know, fundamentally distinctive of what a homo sapien is. So homo sapien sapien means someone who thinks and is conscious and knows he's conscious. And that's actually, the word sapien in, in Latin means uh, wisdom. And it's always interesting because science means knowledge in Latin. It doesn't mean wisdom. And there's a huge difference. You know, they say, Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. And for me, the curiosity of wanting to take things apart, understand what their, you know, kind of building blocks were about, and then do it again. After I did the experiment as a kid, made some pesticide to kill off, hopefully not my neighbor's cat, but kill some bugs or whatever. And, and, and I saw, as I learned more about, I wasn't a good uh, a student as, as a high school student. I was actually held back in mathematics beyond what, be below the grade that would have allowed me to take calculus in high school. So they didn't think I was very good at math. And, um, but because I got into astronomy and I wanted to measure the speed of light using the eclipses of Jupiter, which I didn't know that Galileo had done 400 years earlier, I was like, well, how can I prove this and measure parallax? And I realized 
that curiosity was a gateway drug in this addiction to learning calculus. And I actually had to teach myself trigonometry, pre-calculus, and then I did get into calculus and got the highest score in my class in the AP exam. I was very proud of that. Um, but if I hadn't been curious, I would have found something else to occupy my time with. And so it sort of saved me in a way. And I'm equally curious now with, uh, with the more kind of knowledge you have. They say my father was a mathematician, and they say that mathematicians do their best work by age 30. I don't know if that's true in, math, in, in mathematics or not. I suspect that it's not. But I know for certain that it's not true in physics, especially experimental physics. You know so much more at your age uh, than I do and that, you know, well, hopefully I'll get to, you know, some fraction of it someday. But, uh, but you know more than you did a year ago. And, and your toolkit has magnified. And that allows you to, to investigate more and more things that you're curious about. So that's sort of what I meant. And then, but... I've been thinking a lot about, you know, again, I'm not comparing myself to Einstein or whatever, but I had a scene, the way that Einstein had Besso and Grossman. When I was at Caltech, those were really magical years for me because I had this opportunity to work with Andrew Lang, uh, who is a great um, devotee of yours. He would always speak about you. Magnificent human being, tragically no longer with us. But... um, but being in his lab with Jamie Bach and, and that group of young, hungry postdocs that had this huge amount of intellectual horsepower combined with Andrew's ability to facilitate and, and we could magnify his curiosity as well. And that, that to me was the, you know, kind of, that's the hallmark, I think, of, of a good scientist. I mean, that's my opinion, uh, but, but not restricting it only to the laboratory and wanting to learn about, well, what are the reasons why I want to do certain things. That motivates me. And that, you know, obviously was part of my book, Motivation as well. Well, it's been, I think for, for me, it's always been the central reason I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. Curiosity. Uh, it can be curious, curiosity about, uh, you know, why neutrinos have mass or something profound, or presumably profound, or just why this circuit isn't working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but curiosity is what's always attracted. It's what attracted me into what I do, and it's what drives me, kind of, is, uh, and fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's two elements. I I, uh, I like to have fun in life, mm-hmm. and uh, what I do, if 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 what I'm doing isn't fun, I wouldn't do it. But mm-hmm. having fun, and that that's one reason I worked well with Ray Weiss because yeah. he enjoys being in the lab. I enjoy, it, and uh, it's fun. Yeah. He said on my podcast, uh, he came on after you did. And I said, um, you know, what's your advice to your former self, which I gave, I asked you that question and you mentioned never give up curiosity. And I've taken that, you know, really to heart. And I, and I remember telling you at the time I had interviewed a very famous neuroscientist at Brown university who does work on addiction and his, uh, and his work in addiction is geared towards the overcoming of cravings to eat this delicious cheese. You know, I'm on a diet, um, uh, by doing so, by saying, am I really hungry? Let me investigate. What are these reasons? I struggle with weight my whole life. And, you know, but let me, am I really hungry? Maybe I am, but maybe I'm not. And maybe I'm filling this void or I'm doing it socially. Cause I, you know, I don't want to embarrass, you know, whatever my lovely host, or I want to partake in something that's mindless. So when you said that, I started to think, well, um, let's just say it's an addiction. I'm not, I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm, I don't know if I agree hundred percent with him, but his, his point is that curiosity is rewarding when you find an answer you get that dopamine hit so you can overcome the addiction for food by replacing it with a little less dopamine but still dopamine by doing this oh that's why i'm hungry because i'm i'm with this um my friend and i want to talk but but taking that one step further um i don't know how to put this delicately you know, let's say someone is an alcoholic or, or whatever um you know, there's nothing that you need to drink every day. Like you, you need to eat every day or you'll die, right? But, um, but why do people, why are there so many different types of drinks? Like I'm not big into alcohol. It's not like a huge part of my life. Uh, but there's vodka, and tequila, and whatever, whiskey, and blah, blah. There are all these different types. But, you know, if it's just to get a little bit of a buzz and feel good, you don't need one. But the reason is because humans like variety. And I sensed in Ray, not I'm not, you know, the horrible segue from like alcoholism to Ray Weiss. I'm not. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll say he said that he switched fields every, you know, like almost like clockwork. And then he went from radar. He went to, you know, obviously gravitational. He was CMB. And, and that gave him this little, I interpret as a kind of dopamine hit that he was doing something novel and that he had variety, which the human mind craves. So, um, you know, but what? he also knows how to have fun. 
Yes. He said, if it's not fun, and, you shouldn't do and, it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have a very much uh, similar kind of reward, having fun. Mm -hmm. So curiosity and fun are yeah. the two elements for me personally. Um, but is it for you? You wrote this. You wrote this whole book. We talked about the last page, right? But a lot of the rest of it has to do with getting credit and, you know, being appreciated. All the things mm -hmm. that. Uh, you, right. How much is forgetting about you? Because you, how much is that? What really, it really takes to be a scientist? I'm not sure uh, that I understand others or human nature well enough to know. Okay, it's it's kind of idealistic to say I'm curious and I like to have fun and right. I do science, blah blah blah. Right. Uh, but how much do you also need? Uh, I don't know, appreciation, accolades, what all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Well, I definitely feel that for me it was it was very important. I think less so now. I mean, my my joke now is you know if you want to if you claim that I'm a hypocrite, but but, but I, wasn't some of that? Sorry, but yeah, wasn't some of that because you were expected to be successful by a successful father and so mm -hmm. forth. A lot of what, it was, was that. And actually, you know, Dmitry Basov was the chairman of my physics department when I, and he's the, as you know, the uh, son of Nikolai Basov and the spitting image of Nikolai, by the way. He's a good friend of mine. He's a mentor to me. He does condensed matter physics. Dmitry does now. He's at Columbia, no longer at UCSD. When I was there, he would say things like, we hired you in part because we thought you're going to win a Nobel Prize. And, you know, and, kind of joke like and we'll be pretty disappointed if you don't uh then when it came to get um matching funds for other experiments like sometimes a, an organization will say we'll give you funding but it's contingent on x percent matching from your home institution or whatever he then told me like i'm going to make the case for you to get these funds you know predicated on the fact that you are still are, and this was after bicep too uh that you are one of our best chances at winning a nobel prize um i heard yeah to get tenure yeah so it happens in academia, and I always, oh, that's kind of funny, but, you know, it's like they say, you know, the plural of anecdotes isn't data, but, you know, um, having had a lot of those experiences and just even even during the writing of my book, as I mentioned, um, uh, Duncan Haldane came to UCSD, and he brought either the Nobel Prize or a replica of the Nobel Prize with him, which I want to see if you've got one around, lying around here. I'd love to see it. But... Um, but everybody didn't really care so much about him. And they really did covet and wanted to take pictures and kiss the Nobel Prize. And it, and I took a picture of it. And here I just finished, you know, the first draft of the book about it. And I, I am a, um, a biblical-centered person in terms of values, not like literal biblical intelligence. But, you know, there's a very famous um, uh, part of the Old Testament where the Jews just witnessed these famous 10 plagues that devastate Egypt. And then literally... Three days later, they're in the wilderness. These are former slaves. They're complaining to Moses, Moses, take us back to Egypt because there we were fed pots of meat and garlic. And and, and, and if you read it, it's just like, I thought Jews were supposed to be smart. Like, you know, <laughs> it cut, we come off so badly. And then 40 days after that, they build a calf out of gold and they worship it after seeing God give them the Ten Commandments. It's the second commandment. So... I think that human nature doesn't change too much. I think we all do have idols and, you know, and people may not want to admit that scientists, you know, do things that are not scientific, that are not materialistic, that are, but I think, I think sometimes, and you said it to me, actually it rubbed off a little bit on me when you said that you kind of felt the imposter syndrome when you saw Einstein's name in this ledger and it gave me goosebumps and it gives me goosebumps now to talk to you in person. It's such a treat. Uh, but the fact is, Einstein, you know, Einstein deserves seven Nobel Prizes in, in many people's opinions for all the things. But he also had seven major blunders. And, you know, and, and Jim Gates, who you knew and know very well as our mutual friend, string theory, uh, string theory, supersymmetry pioneer. He has a book about Einstein, proving Einstein right, in which he says, like, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. And I, and I think there is this veneration. And because there are no other kind of um, objective talisman or icons of accomplishment, the Nobel Prize has kind of taken on that for many scientists. Now, I know it didn't motivate you specifically. It's funny because I've never met a Nobel Prize winning. Actually, Frank Wilczek, I did talk to about it. Well, it's, a, it's an unattainable thing for most people. Yeah. 
just people in our profession, yeah. let alone anyone <laughs> right. else. I just happen to hit all the right notes. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think if that's what you strive for, you're almost bound for yeah. disappointment. No. And so I wasn't really keying on the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. as much as... Uh, Does curiosity motivate me? No, no. Oh. Does um, uh, being applauded, appreciated, uh, whatever, whatever rewards there are there, how important is that? Not just for you, but for people that... So we said people that do science mm -hmm. well are driven by, uh, by curiosity mm -hmm. and uh, maybe fun. Yeah. Uh, are they also driven by the need to be appreciated? I mean, mm -hmm. doing science, people look at you. And, mm -hmm. So how much how much is that really a factor? For me, it wasn't much right. because I came from so little. Mm -hmm. I came from a family where my parents didn't go to college. Nothing was expected mm -hmm. of me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to have such lofty goals. Right. So it's not that I'm a better person. It's just everything I did was beyond what I should have done. Mm -hmm. kind of, so I didn't have to. Yeah. Uh, worry about that, but if you think in general, what drives scientists kind of generally, and we differ obviously, mm -hmm. but how important is uh, being appreciated, being respected? Yeah, for me, it, as I, individuals, I, yeah. not for the science. No, no, no. Well, I do want to answer specifically for me, as you you know might know. I, I mean, I had a very difficult relationship with my father. Um, and, and for that reason, because he was missing for most of my formative education and I was really self-taught, you know, it's funny, my father was the youngest full professor. He was a full professor at Cornell when he was like 27, which is basically unheard of. And because he was an academic and because I was going into science and, and college and then graduate school, people would always, oh, you got that from your dad. I'm like, my dad wasn't around for 15 of the most important years of my life and only came back late, much later in my life. Um, that said, I always wanted to prove something to him. And I think in part, I, I look to, um, you know, to, to mentors as kind of like father figures, but wanting to kind of impress them, maybe, you know, compete with them in some sense. And, and I know it's not, I know it's unique to me. So this is not generic to scientists, although I do have some, some thoughts about that, uh, because, you know, science, um, you know, the, the, the way that, that, I see is of course to be dispassionate as, as to be an accountant. You shouldn't, you shouldn't look for like, I should be, you know, the best, most creative accountant in the, in, in history. You know, if your if your doctor tells you, I'm going to be very curious to do this, like I, I'll run away from that doctor. Uh, but on the same token, science scientists are held in such high esteem now. I mean, you hear things like, you know, the party of science, you know, we trust science and, and, it's impossible to escape that there still are some paternalistic aspects of science. So there is this encoded within science. Um, and, you know, for, for a bit, you know, all the people that I mentioned, you know, like Andrew Lang, he was like a father figure to me at that formative age. And he wasn't that much. And he used to say, like, I'm going to give you some fatherly advice. You know, don't get married before you have tenure. <laughs> you know, things I didn't take into uh, to consideration, thankfully, because I, I would have gotten started even later than I did. Um, but now I try to, um, I, I think I see things Personally, I know you're talking generally about scientists. I feel that once you get to graduate school, um, you're no longer graded, but you're still kind of competing. It's, it's almost as if you, you were mentioning you went to Dodger Stadium not too long. I got the San Diego Padres mask here that I went. So imagine um, baseball. It's almost impossible. It's almost as hard to win uh, to get to the major leagues and play for the Dodgers or the Padres um, as it is to win a Nobel Prize. It's extremely few. In fact, there are more people in the in the Major League Baseball than are doing physics like you and I do at an R1 university, right? So, but to be a postdoc, I can't hire any postdocs. They're, you know, you guys sweep them up or like probably the same for you guys, right? It's very hard to hire postdocs. It would be as if the AAA League of Baseball is easy to get into. Anybody can get in. Yeah, I can get in with my gimp arm, but um, but then it's impossible to get to the major leagues. So we have this, we have this um, kind of set of hurdles, which in academia, they stop because you don't get grades in graduate school really anymore. But I think there is this notion of, of hierarchy. Look, we have the H index. We are judged on promotions based on a series of different metrics. The most predominant amongst them, prominent amongst them, is their citation count, H index, impact factor of journal. So we're quantitative by nature as scientists. Uh, and yet there's no, there's nothing really objective to mark scientific excellence. Like, how do I know that Shelley Glashow is, you know, in the same category class 
as, um, you know, let's say uh, Freeman Dyson or something who didn't win a Nobel Prize. Like I met them both, you know, like they're both incredible human beings and incredible intellect, you know? So I think it's just natural because human beings love hacks. We love shortcuts. We want to say this person, and that's part of the reason we have prejudices and biases in society, I think, because we want a shortcut to say, oh, Jews aren't as good as non-Jews or whatever. And so those are pernicious ones, obviously. I think it can carry through into science. I mean, promotions, name chairs, and science is, academia is replete with, with these kinds of distinctions. Yes. And it goes back, you know, a thousand years. And do you think it's important that it be that way? Or, I mean, uh, are we victims of that system or mm, do we create that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Which, which way does it go? Is that something that we need is to have a hierarchy that we create. Yeah, I guess let's examine the alternative. So if you didn't like count or you had differential weightings for different things that are not scientific, um, you know, then would science be better off for it? Uh, I, I think, you know, it's hard to run the counterfactual experiment. And so um, I think what I, what I worry about more is that um, because when we had a big discovery, the, one of the first things that happens is this flywheel starts to ramp up where you want to notify your chair and then your chair tells your dean and your dean tells the press office, the press office tells the local newspaper, local, you know, and there's really ramps up out of control. And that's what I wanted to get into talking about um, colleagues of ours in astronomy, in physics, who have had these huge announcements, uh, made the flywheel kind of go around really successfully. And then, you know, later on things get called into question or whatever. And I'm wondering if, if at the core of it is because science is at some sense beheld, beholden to the government. You know, the fact, one of my colleagues who's a particle physicist, I don't know if you ever knew Hans Parr. Yeah. It was Leon Letterman. So, yeah. So Hans and I were, he was like a mentor to me too. He passed away two years ago, unfortunately. But um, yeah, he had uh, throat cancer. Um, and he was a wonderful person. And, and um, you know, so he used to say, we physicists are the biggest beneficiaries of world peace. You know, because if there's a war they're going to call the scientists and we're going to make bombs or we're going to do whatever. And um, so we serve at the pleasure of the people and the people in charge of the politicians. Sometimes I wonder if we take that too far. In other words, because we don't have, we have tenure, but we don't have stipend. Like I don't get like the Duke of Tuscany giving me a stipend to do research. So we have to apply for large grants, billions of dollars. It might take years and years. So there's a, there is an incentive as Feynman used to say to kind of exaggerate and he warned in his famous speech at Caltech in 1964, the, the famous, you're the easiest person to fool. He said, you should never, you know, uh, you should never really be too, um, too self-promotional uh, in the thought that no one will support you unless you are. In other words, you should never distort what you're doing. And he said, you know, he heard a scientist, an astronomer say, it's, my research is good for nothing. Well, he thought that was actually, uh, that, that, was, that was wrong for the person to do that. So anyway, I think there is this, this kind of incentive system. I don't know. I mean, it's not universal. No. By the way, mm -hmm. I, I give you the counter examples yeah. of Max Planck society mm -hmm. where they don't write any, once mm -hmm. you're, if you're made a Max Planck professor instead of a UCSD professor, mm -hmm. uh, and we have a, a, several in LIGO, mm -hmm. they basically are supported for life mm -hmm. by the Max Planck society. I mean, they're right. They couldn't build LIGO, but they, their salaries are supported, right? Not just their salaries, oh, their laboratories. Labs, yeah. oh, okay. So Reinhard Genzel, mm -hmm. yeah, is this year, yeah, yeah, he's he was in Berkeley before, mm -hmm. uh, but then he went to the Max Planck Society, and mm -hmm. basically all that research was supported through the, without writing proposals. Right. No. Now sure. it's not the most, not as expensive as mine, but it's right. still world class, important research, mm -hmm. and. Uh, well, obviously important, yeah. but uh, but it works in a, a different system. Not so. Would you say that's because the German society has prioritized science mm -hmm. over some other cause that might be held up as equally valid? I don't know. I think it's uh, to me. I, I've been on the oversight, uh, but maybe the system you described is the most successful because science in the U.S. has been preeminent. Yeah. Preeminent. But the one that I that came came to mind is the Max Planck Society, which mm -hmm. uh, has created fantastic science, uh, has fantastic scientists, uh, but is a very old-fashioned model. Mm -hmm. 
it's the model of uh, basically they don't call it this, but where the assistant professor means the assistant to the professor. Right. So you have a professor, he has an institute, and a lot of people that work for him, mm-hmm. uh, which is different than our system right. where junior people go up and, and take over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that that's. I'm on the oversight uh, committee that meets once every three years, so it's not very often uh, for the gravitational. Uh, groups, the gravitational mm-hmm. waves and gravitation, which is in uh, Hanover and in uh, uh, Berlin. But I don't, I don't feel I know it well enough to judge why it is certainly successful. I think it has this problem that it doesn't develop a pipeline very well, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, doesn't seem to be a problem for <laughs> producing science for the eminent people who, who run it. Uh, but in addition to all this that we're not going to, you know, Solve this hierarchy <laughs> and this and that, there's another aspect that you mention all the time, and I, I don't know that I understand it very well, uh, but you use the word quite a few times. You're not afraid of it. Uh, for me, I've always told myself that it's not a strong element for me. I'm not sure, though, mm-hmm. uh, because – and that's competition. Mm-hmm being competitive or you just told me an anecdote that had to do with competition yeah. between people. Uh, as a kid, I played serious tennis. I, think I told you, and I was co- yeah. as competitive as you come, <laughs> but I've never felt or maybe admitted. I don't know that that's been a big driver in doing science. Mm-hmm. I, I never felt it in my guts in the same way I do on a right. tennis court, say, uh, but you seem to have experienced it a lot. And, uh, feel it's a big part of where the whole system's coming from. Yeah. And maybe I'm oblivious to it a little bit or, or denying, I don't know. So where, where does yeah, where so, does competition come in to be doing successful science, not just individually? Where Where is that? I see it a lot in, in groups. Um, we perceived it directly, you know, firsthand with Planck versus bicep two, you know, in terms of groups of scientists, you know, we, we, we always have to be cognizant. Obviously science is done by scientists and scientists are human beings and human beings have all the peccadilloes of mortal, you know, men and women. And so, uh, I've seen it in my career. I've seen it in, in groups that I've been involved in. I've seen it individually. Uh, I'm seeing it right now in, in, in the public sphere, were uh, very eminent colleagues of mine. Um, thinking of a professor at MIT, uh, Sarah Seeger, uh, who is a guest on my podcast, a very eminent astrophysicist and um, an educator, also had, wrote a wonderful book, um, and and uh, and Avi Loeb at Harvard, a cross crosstown rival of them. These are two people who have had very um, very let's say sensational, but in a, in a good way, I don't mean they're like, you know, tabloids like you have here in Los Angeles, but they, they've made, you know, really extravagant claims about, in both cases, some form of life, <laughs> whether it be life in our own solar system, in the atmospheric clouds of Venus, uh, as evidenced by the uh, presence of detected a molecule called phosphine, which is like ammonia, but with uh, phosphorus instead of nitrogen. Uh, and uh, in Avi Loeb's case, with a extremely high degree of confidence that he claims that this object that passed by yeah, the earth, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm aware. Oh, right? Yeah. So um, now I'm getting, I'm talking to both of them and they both don't know that I'm talking to both of them. And they're both identically telling me the same things about how disappointed they are, not only in competing teams using different telescopes, different apparatus or whatever uh, that are, you know, basically taking the opposite point of view in, in some sense, uh, but they're individual scientists, some cases in their home departments, that are attacking and and kind of it's not entirely scientific and I, and I've seen this I won't mention his name but it was a guest on my show very prominent individual who came on my show very good friends with him um, and and criticizing one of these two I'll just say one of these two so I don't have to reveal who it is um, and in public and it's um, it's it's I would find it unseemly if it was like political and you ask well, why is that what is what is it about science I believe you Barry that science is what's called an infinite game. In other words, there's no winner or loser. Like, have you ever, you know, someone says, I won science. It's not the same as chess. Chess is a finite game, a zero-sum game. Science is not, but sometimes I feel like we do treat it as if it is. Like, if you if you win, if Planck got to the B modes before bicep two, 
there'd be a perception, there'd be a dis, you know, concernment. And you saw this with the supernova teams the same way. They were as fiercely competitive as you can possibly imagine. Saul Perlmutter uh, speaks about this. Adam Reese spoke about this on, on my podcast. Um, and so I don't know, I, I'm not going to say that you're you know, not aware of it, but I do feel like you have a couple of what's called survivorship you know, biases in that you were the only game in town. I mean, LIGO is the only sui generis, right? Well, There's well, no one had, else that was competing. We had competition for 15 years for that from the Italian-French. Right, yeah. Uh, and um, there was a question of who was going to get there first. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet we also agreed along the way to use the same data formats mm-hmm. so we could exchange data and things mm-hmm. like that and and, uh, and and that we would eventually be collaborators. So we competed. Mm-hmm. Uh I've heard people say a competition isn't a bad thing. Like they criticize uh, it's me. It's not a bad thing. I was. Yeah. I'm trying to understand how important it is. I know how important it is to play <laughs> tennis. I don't know how important it is in science because my mind hasn't yeah. really focused on it. Maybe just the circumstances I, I've uh, been in. Thanks for listening to part one of this special two-part episode of Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner with Barry Barish and Brian Keating. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And also subscribe to our original podcast, Into the Impossible, available here too. Please support this inspirational podcast by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. Purchase a copy of the book, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, on Amazon to read, or listen to via Audible. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R Brian Keating. For exclusive content and his informative newsletter, sign up for Brian's email list at briankeating.com.